What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we speak with director Allison Elwood about her new two-part documentary series, Laurel Canyon. Welcome back to the Rhino Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Are you a Rhino Insider? Rhino Insider is our loyalty program for music fans in the United States, ages 18 and over. It's free to join, and you earn points by partaking in activities and connecting with us. Then you can use your points to redeem for rewards. Really easy. You engage with us on social media. Tell us what kind of music you love. Read articles on rhino.com. Listen to the Rhino Podcast, which you're already doing. Watch videos. Make purchases on rhino.com. And then you get those points, then you can turn them in for turntables, vinyl, box sets, cool rhino swag and apparel, exclusive content, discounts on music, and more. It's easy to join. Go to rhinoinsider.com, enter your email address, confirm it, and you're good to go. Visit rhinoinsider.com and sign up today. Well, we've got a fun one for you, folks. There's a new documentary coming on the premium network, Epics, entitled Laurel Canyon. And we have director Allison Elwood with us for this episode to talk all about it. Laurel Canyon provides an intimate portrait of the artists who created a music revolution during the 60s and 70s in Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles. Uses a truckload of rare and newly unearthed footage and audio recordings. Some fabulous pictures. Allison got a bunch of brand new interviews with so many of the artists that were there and made it happen, including Jackson Brown, Don Henley, Michelle Phillips, Graham Nash, Linda Ronstadt, Bonnie Raitt, Roger McGuinn, the list goes on. And she paints a fabulous picture of what it was like in Laurel Canyon in the 60s and early 70s when all that fabulous music was being made. And just some of Allison's feature film directing credits include the new upcoming Go-Go's documentary, The Go-Go's, the wonderfully fantastic history of the Eagles, Magic Trip, Ken Kesey's Search for a Cool Place, and Gonzo, The Life and Work of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. Laurel Canyon will premiere Sunday, May 31st at 10 p.m., and part two concludes the following Sunday, June 7th at 10 p.m. on Epics. Allison Elwood, thank you very much for joining us on the Rhino Podcast. Thanks for having me. You have a new documentary about the greatest music in the world. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> Out of all the documentaries I've seen on Laurel Canyon, this is absolutely my favorite. And I think it's because it's told from the point of view of the musicians themselves. First off, these photographs, of course, we've seen a bunch of them, but there are a bunch of photographs in here, including some early photos of the birds that are just absolutely magnificent. That must have been a Herculean task in and of itself to source these photos. Well, luckily for us, we have been friends with Henry Diltz for quite some time. He worked with us on the Eagles documentary several years ago, and we've stayed in touch. And, you know, his he photographed everybody. So having his the resources that he had were unbelievable. And then we reached out to other sources as well. And then, of course, we had Nareet Wild, who was our, you know, our two documentarians who are the only people who appear in on-camera contemporary interviews. Right. That, I wanted to talk about that, too. And it's interesting that it's, it's so heavy with photographs, beautiful photographs. And then the only two people that you have contemporary are photographers. So I loved that. Yeah, that was always the plan. We wanted it to be an experiential film that you, you go into that time and you stay in that time. But it seemed like it made sense to have our two documentarians be able to take us out and give us a little context because they were the ones documenting it. And that they had that perspective as documentarians that I think enabled them to step out. Whereas the artists, you just stay in that time zone. You never come out of it. And that was always the intention going into it was to make it like that, which was challenging. But I think we pulled it off. As I was watching it, I just had to remember that I was watching it to review it. I just got sucked in as a fan and really found myself immersed in it. It was wonderful. Great experience. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, the music is extraordinary. And what I love so much... and. Part of what was so wonderful about my process of discovery, because I know a lot about this time and this music, but was how they, in, how the artists interwove with one another. Those connections were so beautiful, I thought, in terms of how they learned from one another, took from one another, gave to one another. It was like a Petri dish. Very collaborative versus competitive. Yeah. I think now it tends to be a little more, people are more protective, and especially if they're on their way up, they don't want to give away something that would put them further behind the eight ball, so to speak. You know? Yeah. Well, the truth is, is it was, you know, back then it was, I, I think there was a certain naivete about it too, that it was much more about the art and the music and less about the business. And a lot of those folks didn't know much about the business end of it. And, you know, as a result, some of them got, you know, ripped off by the business end of it. Um, so oh, yeah. it was sort of an innocence that, that fed that spirit, which was so lovely. But it's also why I don't think it could ever happen again, which is sad. Right. But at the same time, concurrently, you had a, a scene in the northern part of the state up in San Francisco. You must have thought about this. How do you compare and contrast those two scenes? I mean, they're very different scenes. The San Francisco scene kind of looked down on the L.A. scene for quite some time. And um, thought they were, you know, scruffy and not not as together. And so that sort of was funny. But in the end, we just they're they're very unique scenes. And we we really just wanted to stay placed in the Los Angeles scene. So um, but you're right. The San Francisco thing was a whole other thing. But they really did, for the most part, look down on the L.A. artists, at least. Yeah, I think they thought it would be more commercial. Yeah, maybe. Well, you know, that they got lumped into the Southern California sound, which is sort of silly because all of them sound totally different from one another. Um, Yeah. You know, there really isn't that Southern California sound, but they got lumped into that. And I think the Northerners kind of rejected that being pigeonholed in that way. The Manson killings 
before and after that happened, how did that change the canyon? Was it was it just kind of a passing season of darkness or did it change it permanently? I think the undertones of it changed it permanently. I mean, it went from being this very open place where literally doors were unlocked and people could come in and out to where people started locking doors. And, you know, and then the other thing is society started looking at hippies rather than being these harmless sort of lost souls. Hippies were looked upon by society now as potentially being dangerous. So it changed the perception of society on these guys. It changed their perception of one another. And it could be so close and within their community and, you know, with such close ties. Because, you know, Manson was trying to, you know, he was a, you know, a wannabe rock and roller. Um, Right. And, you know, wasn't good and was promised things that didn't end up happening and, you know, got all these people on these crazy drugs and went, went nuts. I think it was the beginning of this sort of darker undertone that kind of carried through to the end. Um, you know, and Altamont was part of that, too. Yeah. Kind of the northern bookend yeah. to it, yeah. for sure. And kind of right around the same time, you know, not too far apart. Yeah, I guess, no, right? actually, the, the murders happened. And then Altamont happened, and then they realized Manson was involved. In the film, we, we have Altamont first and then the Manson murders, but in, in actuality, they were kind of overlapped. What would you say the sweet spot for Laurel Canyon was, and when would you actually put a button on it and say it was done this time? The film basically covers the from essentially 65 to 75, and I think that that decade is the, the right decade for that era. I mean, I think it was a little bit slow getting going. And then once all those artists started flooding from the East Coast to Los Angeles and specifically to Laurel Canyon and the Troubadour, of course, being the anchor for all of that movement, you know, obviously in the earlier years, that was, you know, absolutely ground zero of that of that moment. Um, And I think that as other people came in, that they sort of came in and found the scene that had been established and tried to carry it on. But then the second wave of artists, I don't know that they, were, that they were more ambitious per se, but they learned more about the music industry and they came with goals in mind, like the Eagles specifically. I mean, Glenn wanted to be a rock and roll star and be in a rock and roll band that was successful. And yeah. that ethos, I don't think, had been part of the earlier scene as, as dominantly as it was with them. So it changed a little bit and, and people started making money too. And of course, that always impacts things. So we like midway through in the early 70s, you know, the money starts being made and that and that changes things too. Yeah, that's interesting. And then you also had this change with not only artists becoming more aware of the business side or being more uh, career and success driven, but then you also had people like Elliot Roberts and David Geffen that were hanging out with the musicians and were friends with them, but then took that same approach, but applied it to the business side of things. And I think that you had kind of an infiltration in the business scene of the people from the Canyon at that point. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, to be honest, those, the Canyon artists were particularly lucky that people like Elliot Roberts, is especially, who was just, it was until the very end. We actually did the very last interview with him before he passed, which. Oh, wow. Which was, um, and we dedicate the films to him. Um, and, and again, he was someone that we'd been close with since the Eagles project as well. So it was a great loss to you know, our film community who knew him and respected him, um, obviously to Laurel Canyon and that whole music scene, it was a tremendous loss, but they were so lucky to have had someone like Elliot 
and 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 David Geffen too, certainly in the early years, who really yeah. understood what these artists were about and understood them right. on a level that was very different than just a business person swooping in to make money. These guys really believed in what they were doing, and and big credit to them for for recognizing the talent because other people weren't. I mean, you know, they couldn't get Jackson signed, so they formed their own company. We'll do it ourselves. <laughs> And thank God they did. Exactly. I mean, right. can you imagine not having his music? I know. That would be I know. such a loss. I know. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the Eagles documentary, which is, it. the whole thing's great, but I got to say, part one, every time I talk to a friend about part one, man, again, great job sourcing footage and, and, and images. I mean, it's amazing. How did working on that and, and some of the other documentaries that you've worked on, I mean, uh, Magic Trip, Ken Kesey's? That one's great. It's kind of, you know, culturally along the same lines. Absolutely. That's a whole nother topic for discussion, isn't it? That but, was another one we wanted to be very immersive too. And we found, yeah. you know, that all that footage, that was a project that took forever because Scorsese's foundation um, helped fund the re restoration of the footage through UCLA and it took five years. So we would get footage in dribs and drabs, um, you know, cause they shot all that stuff, but Ken had tried to cut it himself for years. And so it was in, pieces and shredded all over the place and found in people's basements and attics. And wow. And so it took a long time, but the, the point of that one was to be immersive and experiential as well. You just, you, when you're on that bus, you stay on the bus it's with the voices as hard as they sometimes were with passing <laughs> to, to follow. Um, but you know, the other documentaries, I mean, with the Eagles, we lucked out with that footage that was shot in 1977 for a film that was a documentary that was being made about them but they broke up before the documentary could be completed. So nothing ever happened with that footage. So we had all that amazing 16 millimeter performance footage and yeah. scene stuff that, you know, people had seen clips of before, but no one had ever seen, seen it to the extent that we were able to, to use it in the film. So we, that was, a, that was a, a, amazing. And with that one in particular was, we had the footage, which was beautiful, but no one could find the audio recordings. We had these, you know, crappy line feeds that were totally distorted. You couldn't hear. Yeah. So we found in someone's garage the original recordings. And they were so old and they'd been stored in not an ideal situation. So we had to bake the tapes, which means you get one run through. And they literally were disintegrating on the other side. Oh, wow. And so we, we got that stuff. And, and thankfully, it, uh, we had to do all this pitch shifting and everything because it was damaged. But thank God yeah. we had it because otherwise, I don't know what we would have done because the tracks we had to work with for the first, you know, four or five months were really not good. So we were going, oh, what are we going to do? You know? So it was right. a miracle that we found that. So. Yeah. Yeah. And thank God for Pro Tools and everything. Yeah. I mean, because once you do get it digitized, yeah. then you can pretty much you can get it to sound the way yeah. you want. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. So yeah. you're doing the world a service by <laughs> saving those tapes. Thank you. How did making that documentary or any of the other music kind of and cultural related documentaries inform the way that you wanted Laurel Canyon to look and feel? 
I guess the, the main thing that for Laurel Cam, we always knew that we didn't want to cut to much older rock stars at this point in their, in their lives. We wanted to be, keep it in that moment. Yeah. Cause it, it takes you out of the sixties. It takes you out of that moment, you know, yeah. and you know, yeah. not that they're, they're still, many of them are really good looking and articulate and sharp and all of that. It's just, it, it takes you out. Um, yeah. Right. And we just, we didn't want that in this. Like I've done it. I just did a film about the Go-Go's um, as well, which is about going to be released soon. And, and that's like the whole punk scene of, you know, late seventies, early eighties. And, you know, in that one, you know, we did want to go on camera because the girls are still totally not dead gorgeous. And they're such great storytellers that it doesn't take you out. They are, their characters are part of their story. So it's just, yeah. each project is different. Um, but because there were so many artists in Laurel Canyon, we thought that by keeping it in Laurel Canyon, not leaving that, was the way to actually make everyone kind of equal in a way that, that you're, no one's being, that you, you just stay there for everyone. I, I did catch myself a couple times saying, wow, this is great. Because sometimes, you know, you, you get into a documentary and it, it just doesn't, you're not immersed in it, but this absolutely hit that right on the head. Well, we shot a lot, um, you know, cause we did a lot of recreations, but we shot a lot of them on super eight intentionally. Oh, that's cool. Right. We don't necessarily know whether it's archive or, you know, recreation. And some stuff we did intentionally super stylized. So, you know, it's recreation, like some of those cityscapes and the time lapse and all that. But a lot of the uh, super eight stuff is meant to just sort of blend in with the other super eights, you know, the footage from that time. So how important were the birds for setting the tone for the whole Los Angeles scene? Oh, I think they were critical. I mean, I think that one, it was a sound that people were super excited about. And then other artists, you know, who had known them and ran into them on the East coast and everything, like, wait a minute, if these guys can make it, so can we, let's get out there. I think that they were the original magnet. had Graham Parsons join after David Crosby left, Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Then, of course, Graham goes on to form Flying Burrito Brothers. Right. Did they live in the canyon as well? Yes, they, they were all in the canyon. I don't know if Graham Parsons lived there. I know he hung out there a lot. They would have these crazy poker games and everything. But yeah, a lot of those guys were up there. I'm your toy. I'm your old boy. But I done the Eagles documentary. Of course, Bernie Ledden yeah. was in the Flying Burrito Brothers. Sure. So you can see the pathways, but how much of an influence were the Flying Burrito Brothers on the Eagles? I think they were definitely an influence. I remember doing the interviews with those guys about the Burrito Brothers for, for the Eagles film, and they also they were a huge influence to be able wow. to fuse, fuse that, that country sound, which was so great. And the, and the Eagles had a big country sound, too. Take it easy. 
take it easy Don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy Lighten up while you still can Don't even try to understand Just find a place to make your stand And take it easy And you can't talk about the early Eagles without talking about Linda Ronstadt. Yep. Great footage you have of them playing together. Yep. It was Glenn and Don yep. playing drums back there. Yep. That was footage we actually found um, when we were doing the Eagles film. We have part of that footage in, in that film as well. And when we found that, that was like, oh, my God, it's actually them playing with them. It's amazing. <laughs> was that at the Troubadour? Uh, it was at the Troubadour, yeah. It must be a great spot to shoot because there's so many areas you can get up high and above the stage, yeah. you know? Yeah. What was it about Linda Ronstadt that enabled her to be such a great interpreter of song? Well, first of all, she's incredibly smart and so soulful. She just knows good songs and she would know them immediately and would want to sing them and be just driven to do that. So many people say, even though she never wrote her own music, she composed by virtue of her interpretation. And I think that that's true. She's an incredibly gracious, caring, giving person. And, you know, obviously the voice, what a talent. Yeah. And, and just her generosity of spirit, I think. To this day, everyone does, everyone raves about what a wonderful spirit she is. She also covered Little Feet a lot, too. And also, you know, let's not forget her cover of Desperado sort of resuscitated that album for the Eagles. It wasn't a hit until she recorded it. Desperado Why don't you come to your senses You've been out riding fences For so long now Oh, you're a hard one But I know that you got your reasons These things that are Somehow. That's right. The Eagles really didn't take off until what the third, third album? album. Yeah. Yeah. But before that, back to kind of more the psychedelic '60s yeah. section of the film. Over at Electra Records, Jack Holtzman taking a chance on rock and roll. Yep. And he takes a chance on two of the most maybe important psychedelic bands that came out of Los Angeles: Love and The Doors. Yep. You listen to The Doors, and they don't sound like anybody else. They're yeah, so unique. I love Jim Ladd's line about them. Um, you know, there was the Southern California sound, and there was the Southern California sound at night, and that was The Doors. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the day destroys the night. Night divides the day. Try to run. Try to hide, break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, yeah. I love that he's still on the radio, Jim Lack. He's great. I just spoke with yeah. him last night. He was in Laurel. He lived in Laurel Canyon for 45 years. He lived in one of those houses that has the cable cars yeah. up to it. And he interviewed all the artists up there in that space and... He's very much a, a Canyon guy and just loves the film. And it's super exciting to know how psyched he is. Has he watched it? Yeah, he just watched it. 
And he called, oh, very he cool. called me last night, was flipping out. So actually he watched yeah. the second part first because I told him he was in the second part. So so he skipped the first part when he first called me a week ago. And I said, like, come on, man, you got to watch the whole thing. <laughs> so he called me last night and said that with he and his girlfriend and his girlfriend was whooping it up in the background. So he approved of the first half as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I'll listen to his show on Deep Tracks on Sirius XM. Yeah. And I love how his dog just starts barking yeah. in the middle of a show. He's, he's a yeah. great character. I had a really <laughs> fun interview with him, actually. It was a long one. It was, it was great. He's got a lot of insight. A lot of these people have insight, which is they're all smart and interesting and introspective, which is great. The doors obviously blew up, got huge, yeah. but love not so much. What do you think it was that kept love from rising to the level of success that their label mates, the doors did? Well, I think it's the story that, you know, Johnny Eccles tells in the film, which I didn't know is that, um, you know, love wanted out of their deal with Electra because they didn't think that they were promoting them enough. So like, okay, we'll scheme and we'll get you the doors and then you'll let us out of our contract and so they got him the doors after it, it actually took three times to get Holtzman to go see Morrison because the first two times he went Jim was drunk and he's like I don't get this what is this about finally yeah. he went the third time and understood because Jim was on his game and understood the the power that he had and the band had and uh so they signed the doors and then basically left love in the dust so all of the money when the you know because these budgets obviously weren't small they couldn't support two bands at that point they poured everything all the promotion into the doors and love just sort of got left behind yeah said it's all right i won't forget all the times i've waited patiently for you and you'll do just what you choose to do Talk about Alice Cooper, because Alice Cooper is not a name you generally associate with Laurel Canyon. No, but he was there. He was absolutely there, um, hanging around with Zappa. And, you know, I, I love that story when he goes to show up at Zappa says, come at seven and he shows up at 7 a.m. He's like, what are you doing? <laughs> Alice is, I mean, he was a funny interview, too. It's uh, his line, you know, rock and roll you know, had heroes, but it also needed a villain. So he was going to be the villain. You know, yeah. And his whole thing is a, it's all shtick. I mean, he's a really smart, gentle guy who comes off as being, you know, this hard ass, which he is, is not. <laughs> no, he is a sweetheart. Yeah. He's a great guy. Super sweet guy. Look up standing with your head held high. You will be reflected. Outstanding with your eyes in disguise Just be undermasked talk about frank zappa would you say frank was the first one to move to the canyon and i, th I think he was in fact the first one to live there you know because then the birds moved in and uh and they were up the hill so yeah no i think he was the first one the first one there but I mean, he was sort of doing more of his his own thing i mean i wish we could have had him be a bigger character in the film but it just he wasn't as much part of that particular scene he was so doing his own thing that was 
that was so unique. Yeah, he's maybe the anomaly in that yeah. crowd that he was more isolated. Yeah. But, you know, he hung out with them and they knew him and, you know, it wasn't quite the same fit for, but he was right. there and we mentioned him and which is fun. One band that was absolutely huge, but I think a lot of people maybe have said that they weren't really a band is, of course, the Monkees, mm -hmm. you know, that came out of the television show. But it seems to me that everybody that was in the canyon certainly accepted them as peers on equal footing. Absolutely. And that was also surprising to me to, to see how that was. I mean, part of the thing was, is that they had money. So, you know, because everyone else was still struggling, but these guys have this hugely successful TV show and selling albums. So they had money. And so they were able to throw parties and have these fun houses where everybody would go and hang out. Nobody looked at them differently because they had money, but they just happened to be there and happened to be able to throw these extravagant parties and, and became, you know, this, these hangouts. So they were very welcome in the scene and, and driving the scene. I mean, you know, those hot parties at Mickey's place and those ping pong tournaments that would go on for days were, were a huge part of the scene. And everyone was, that's what's so lovely about that time then. It's just, it, it was just so free and floating and you'd run into people and, it wasn't competitive. It wasn't, I'm better than you. It was, you know, we're all in this truly together. Never ending party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mobile party, go from one house to another. Yep. Peter Tork's house was the place you wanted to go if you wanted to go skinny dipping in the pool. <laughs> Mary, Mary, seems like there were so many bands that really led to other things out of that scene. Like you said, so collaborative. Somebody would break up, but then another band would form out of it and become even bigger. Yeah. So it really was so fertile. Yeah. Of course, you know, Buffalo Springfield, and we get, we've get gotten so far away from those bands when they were actually live and working that we forget how big they were back in their day. Yeah. But then they broke up. And out of that, you get Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yep. And there was a point where they were absolutely the biggest band in the world. Yep. They were selling out huge stadiums. And you get those three singular voices, and each one had come out of very successful music groups. What are the odds of that happening? I mean, it's it could only happen in Laurel Canyon. Yeah, there was a zeitgeist that they were so tapped into. Helplessly hoping others nearby. Well, talk about people that were put other people together, matchmakers, musical matchmakers. I don't think there was anybody in the canyon that was maybe more of that type of a person than Mama Cass. Yeah. Yeah, of course. What was it about her that drew people to her and trusted her in a way that they could listen to what she said and really take it to heart? I think it was her motherly nature. She was, you know, her, her warmth, her kindness, her generosity. Her house was, 
you know, party central ground zero for, you know, a lot of things, a lot. The first time Crosby, Stills and Nash sang together was at her house. Eric Clapton sees Joni Mitchell play guitar for the first time at her house. She was just this magical magnet that drew these people together and understood combinations that that was just remarkable. She just had an, an ability to understand who would be good paired with whom and and just had this natural ability and her warmth and kindness and just everyone, she was, she was Mama Cass. <laughs> when Cass was a sophomore, planned to go to Swarthmore, but she changed her mind one day. Standing on the turnpike, thumb out the hitchhike, take her to New York right away. When Jenny met Cass, he gave a love bar. Most John is all, and that was the much from McQuinn and McGuire couldn't get no higher. That's what they were aiming at. And no one's getting fat except Mama. It sounds like she had one of those houses like Mickey Dolan's, as you were talking about, Hack. Well, hers even more so, because Mickey was more like party, you know, and, and Mama Cass's house was party central, but it was also just creative central. It was just like where people would go to show each other what they're doing and experience new things, which was remarkable. Talking about special ladies of the canyon, uh, I think we'd be remiss to leave out Joni Mitchell. Really, what a singularly unique voice. And her guitar tunings, there's so much that's unique about her music and her approach to things. It's almost as if she was kind of outside the traditional music that was being created in the canyon. She's so different from everybody else, yet she fit in perfectly. Yeah. I mean, you know, so many people thought of her as being more of a folk artist, but she she really wasn't as much a folk artist as she was just a classical musician and was was able, whether she couldn't tune her guitar or wanted to tune it in, in those ways, um, you know, Crosby would always joke when he'd pick up her guitar and try to play, like, oh, the Martians have been here. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, again, as you said, you know, this incredibly unique voice and style and sound, and yet she did fit right in. Bind and leaf of filigree, and her coats are second-hand wine, trimmed with antique luxury, she is a lady of the canyon. sort of great about all of them because none of them sound alike you know there's a little yeah. bit of similarity especially in the beginning but then as each band and artist develops their own voice they don't sound anything alike and yet they just were part of that zeitgeist that was so unique yeah yeah it's hard it's they all were part of a category you could say that they all were los angeles or laurel canyon artists but inside of that mm-hmm. really the the differences are striking it seems like the, the Laurel Canyon scene really was great at harmony, vocal harmony. Yeah. And that was really important. Of course, with the birds, Mamas and the Papas, Crosby, yep. Stills, and Nash, Buffalo, Springfield. And Eagles, um, later on. And the Eagles, absolutely, are part of that tradition, yep. without a doubt. I mean, if you listen to them, the Seven Bridges Road clip backstage warming up before, yeah. I mean, come on. Yep. It doesn't get any better than that. And I wonder why. It seems like most artists were more music and improv focused in the early days in San Francisco and more harmony focused in LA. Certainly seems that way. I don't know. I don't have an answer for you as to why that was. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly the harmonizing was a huge part of the LA scene and, and part of what made them recognize each other as being able to collaborate with too. 
Well, I think that's one of the great things about your film here is that it's got me thinking about these things. Yeah. And that's what great art does. And it was such a joy to watch your film. Well, fantastic. I'm so glad you enjoyed yeah. it. And I hope the word gets out. And because uh, it, it, it's, it's pretty special time. And the artists are amazing and quite a ride. Thanks very much to director Allison Elwood here to talk about her new documentary, Laurel Canyon. It premieres Sunday, May 31st at 10 p.m. and concludes with part two the following Sunday, June 7th at 10 p.m. on Epics. Well, Rhino recently ran a contest on the Rhino and Monkey socials, and we're happy to announce our winner. In fact, let's allow him to introduce himself. Hi, this is Jeff Curtis Jr., vocalist and guitarist from Stanford, Connecticut. I became a fan of the Monkees via my father's record collection and even more so during their popularity resurgence via the MTV rebroadcasting of the Monkees TV series. As a musician, I feel the Monkees never got the credit they deserved. They had brilliant songwriters, tons of hits, great session musicians. They played a variety of styles, ranging from country, garage rock, pop, ballads, psychedelic rock, and eventually led to a sound that influenced bands like the Eagles, Linda Ronstadt, the Flying Burrito Brothers, etc. Though they were prefabbed, supposedly, they became an actual band, actual songwriters, and great musicians in their own right. My favorite Monkees obscure deep cut is You and I. It appeared on the Monkees' 1969 album, Instant Replay. Penned by Davy Jones with Bill Chadwick, it features blistering guitar by Neil Young. And in my opinion, one of Davy Jones's most potent and hard-edged vocals. This is a clear-cut example of a massive hit that should have been, but never was. My favorite part of the song are the lyrics. We'll be gone, and someone new will take our place. There'll be another song, another voice, another pretty face. To me, that symbolizes the band breaking up, fleeting fame, the ideology of the 60s being over, and basically just life in general, that somewhere else will come take our place. Folks, if you'd like to win any future giveaways, make sure you follow Rhino on Facebook and Instagram. You could end up on the Rhino Podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino Podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.